had I packed my sackcloth and ashes, I would have worn them tonight because I am so sorry. I didn't know that it was not Nevada. It is Nevada. And I will <laughs> never make that mistake again. So if you've been angry about that all day today, uh, I am so sorry. And I recommend you get the Biggers CDs from this week about forgiveness and just sort of get over it. Um, Well, last night we talked about spiritual life in terms of not trying to be righteous and do good, but rather in terms of training, living in the presence of God and allowing him to change us from the inside out. From the book that I've been kind of citing all week, The Kingdom Life, he goes then to talk about what this training looks like. And Keith Matthews, the author of this chapter that I cited last night, says early on, the only thing I could equate with training was my quiet time. He elaborates by saying, like any religious activity, it also had pitfalls. It wasn't long before my quiet time turned into legalism. And then superstition, in which I relied on the activity itself to be my righteousness with God. When I missed my quiet time, I would feel as if I was failing God or that God might not be happy with me for my lack of devotion. I've come to learn that the correct practice of spiritual disciplines, exercises or habits is that they are more related to wisdom than to righteousness, meaning that they don't earn any brownie points with God. In other words, I don't earn God's favor or blessing by doing of a discipline. They are simply the means to an end. The end? Spending time before God in a particular practice whereby I can learn to be like Him in character and action. This is how transformation happens. And these disciplines that we talked about last night and these training habits is just a way of being intentional about being with God. And as he points out, it is a way to glean wisdom on how to do life wisely, the kingdom life. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit about wisdom. Now, would any of you agree that there is a difference between being wise and being smart? You can be smart, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are wise. Would you agree with that? Now, growing up in New England in the shadow of Ivy League universities like Harvard University and Brown University and others, I've always had this certain mystique associated with academia. I've always been kind of intimidated by academia. So you can understand when I flew back from Walla Walla to Andrews University to defend my Ph.D. dissertation, I was kind of freaked out by all of this. So I had a really good friend who was a colleague on staff with us there at Walla Walla Church where he said, I'll go to Andrews with you just sort of as moral support. Well, the night before in the hotel room, I realized Troy didn't take this whole deal nearly as seriously as I did. As I was feverishly cramming for the defense the following day, Troy was compiling a list of random words. He said, here's the deal, Hafner. 
For every one of these words that you can seamlessly weave into your defense tomorrow, I'll give you a dollar. He had words like dodgeball, kumquat. And then he said, I'll give you a $5 bonus word, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Well, I can tell you the next day, the last thing I was worried about was working his silly words into the defense. Things really got dicey when the external examiner started to just skewer me with questions. She said, now, Mr. Hafner, I find it quite peculiar that you call this a phenomenological study, and yet you fail to cite the father of phenomenology, Edmund Husserl. Now, I'm sure you did that for a good reason, but I can't for the life of me understand why you wouldn't quote Dr. Husserl. I panicked. The reason I never quoted Edmund Husserl is because... I'd never heard of the dude. (laughs) Then I remembered a tip that somebody gave me. He said, if you get into a snag, just ask a question of the questioner, which seemed like a good thing to do in that moment. And so to answer her question, I asked a question. I said, Edmund Husserl. Is that the man who loved playing dodgeball and eating kumquats while he sang supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? Seven bucks. Figured I might as well walk out of the room with something because I knew it wouldn't be a diploma. Well, sometimes I think You can have lots of degrees and you can be really entrenched in the world of academia and still not be very wise. I'll tell you my favorite story on this one. Uh, Randy Johnson, who is actually the nephew of the former president, Lyndon Johnson. His senior year at Oklahoma State University, he was a mediocre quarterback on a less than average team. But He and his pals on the football team knew that they could be elevated to superstar status on campus if somehow they could just pull off the unlikely upset and win the last game of the year against their in-state rivals from the University of Oklahoma. Well, it didn't look so good for Randy and the boys. With just a few seconds remaining on the clock, one play left. They needed to cover 80 yards of real estate in order to score a touchdown in order to win the game. Well, as a tribute to the seniors, the coach decided to put all the seniors in, knowing this would be their last football play of their careers. And he told Randy, the quarterback, you can call the last play. Whatever you want to call, you do it. When the huddle Randy called play number 13. His teammates wondered whether or not he was serious because play number 13 was a trick play that they had never executed even once in practice, let alone with the whole game and really the whole season on the line. But that's what he called. So that's what they did. Caught the defense totally Off guard, they scored a touchdown, carried Randy off on their shoulders. Coach couldn't wait 
to get into the locker room to ask him the obvious question, what were you thinking? As it turns out, it was genius. But coach said, what possessed you to make that kind of a gutsy call? And Randy answered, well, coach, you got to understand. It was really an emotional time there in the huddle because we all knew this was the last time we'd ever get to play football together. And I looked over at my teammate, Randy, and he was wearing a big eight on his jersey. And then right next to him, my friend Steve, and he was wearing jersey number seven. So I just added up the two numbers and... Came up with play number 13. <laughs> and coach thought about it for a second and said, but Randy, 8 plus 7 doesn't equal 13. Randy said, you know, you're right. But if I was as smart as you, we'd have lost the game. <laughs> Sometimes just being smart can be overrated. You can have more degrees than a thermometer and still not live wisely. So tonight, we want to think about what it looks like to live wisely. So we consult the writings of the wisest man who has ever lived, which we know to be who? Solomon. This is how Scripture describes the wisdom of Solomon. I'm in first Kings here, chapter four, beginning in verse twenty nine. First Kings chapter four, twenty nine and thirty will read. Scripture tells us that God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East. And greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. The wisest man who has ever lived. Another thing we know about Solomon, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. This is a man who answered to 1,000 different women. And he's the smartest man who ever lived? You do the math on that one. I can't figure that out. In chapter 10, of first Kings verse four, we read how the queen of Sheba experienced for herself Solomon's wisdom message translation says it took her breath away. And she said to Solomon, how happy your men must be, how happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Parents, you probably hear that from your kids all the time, don't you? Oh, how happy people around you must be to just sort of learn as wisdom drips from your lips every word. You're such a wise parent. You hear that a lot from your kids? Me neither. (laughs) So Solomon, the wisest man who ever lives, gives us this counsel during different seasons of life. And to simplify this, let's just assume that all of us are going to die on our 100th birthday. I would take that, wouldn't you? 
So we're all going to live to be 100 years old. And every 25 years of our life then represents a season. So if you're 25 years or younger, you are in the spring season of life. 26 to 50, you are in the summer season of life, and so on. From his journal, Solomon gives counsel to people in each season of life. So we begin in the season of spring. Turn over, if you would, in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, the Journal of Solomon, chapter 11. This is the counsel that he gives to young people. Verse 9, be happy, young person, he says, while you are young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Be happy, he says to kids. Let your heart give you joy. Now, it's ironic that young people today reportedly are not that happy. Can you imagine? have every convenience, every comfort imaginable, a lot of these kids, every technological gadget that you can think of. And yet, according to a lot of different surveys and studies... They don't report feeling happy. UNICEF reported of a survey where they looked at the young people of the 21 most developed nations in the world. Of those nations, what country do you suppose had the happiest kids? Anybody want to just venture a guess? You can shout out a guess if you want. Australia, Japan, haven't heard it yet. Switzerland, Finland, you're getting close. It's the Scandinavian countries, Sweden and Norway, Denmark, Finland, all of those were right at the top. Anybody want to guess where the United States of America, where our young people came in? The bottom, not quite, but you're very close. We were next to last. Now, our kids have everything. Here we are next to last. They're not happy. Anybody want to guess what the country at the very bottom was, even worse than we are? England. William Falk in The Week magazine writes about that study. It would be comforting to shrug off the report as pure anti-American bunkum. But as the parent of a teen and a tween, I cannot. I've seen firsthand the emptiness that haunts so many middle-class kids from an early age. They are taught that life is this pitiless pursuit of individual gratification and success, requiring above-average brains and above-average looks. There is no sense of context or community or higher purpose. It's hardly surprising that so many of them are taking antidepressants, ADHD meds, or other pills. Many more hide their sadness in eating disorders, drugs, or meaningless hookups. In our rush to give our children everything, I'm afraid we have forgotten to help them answer a question that will not be ignored. What is this all for? We give our kids, our grandkids, everything they could ever want. Except sometimes we fail to help them answer a question. What's the point of all of this? So they might be really smart and get a good education. 
but not be happy because they don't really live wisely. Well, it's not long. And we mature into the summer season of life. This is when we hope to make our mark in the world, where we try to fatten the portfolio, where we add boats and cars and homes and try to succeed in the world. And if there was anybody who was successful, it was Solomon. He excelled during this summer season of his life. I undertook great projects, he says, Ecclesiastes 2.4. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women and singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of men. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. Solomon reports, I had everything you can imagine. His version of an iPod, according to the scriptures, is that he just had an orchestra and a choir anytime he wanted to. He could just ask them to perform a certain number. He had everything you could want. Over in 1 Kings 10, tells us the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, which... Roughly today, that would be approximately $340 million. And understand, this was just from one of several revenue streams. An annual income of $340 million. That's more than I make in a whole month. (laughs) King Solomon Verse 23 of 1 Kings 10 was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought an audience with Solomon. He was successful. Some years ago, I received a telephone call from a gentleman I had never met. He introduced himself and said, I heard from a friend of a friend that You sometimes conduct funerals. My wife just recently passed away, and I don't know any other clergymen, and so I was wondering if you would be willing to perform her funeral. Not to worry, he added. You will be compensated handsomely. Well, I said I'd be happy to do that. Now, when I drove into his driveway, I just gasped. As I turned onto this long paved driveway that had trees on either side of the driveway, when I saw his mansion, I could hardly believe it. I was met at the door by the butler, then instructed to stand in the marbled hallway where I enjoyed watching the waterfall in his entryway. He had full-grown trees in his entryway. And at last, he came out and ushered me into a seating area. We sat down, and after the chit-chat, 
he once again reiterated. He said, I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, And don't you worry. You will be compensated handsomely. Well, I explained that I'm actually employed by a denomination and that I receive my salary from the church and that I don't uh, expect or want any honorarium for my services. I'm happy to do the funeral for free. And he said, very well, then I won't pay you. (laughs) Which was fine, except to this day it drives me nuts. What did he really mean? When he said, compensated handsomely. I will never know. I got out my notepad and said, tell me a little bit about your wife. First thing he said, well, she loved to shop. So I wrote that down. What else? Well, um, there's not much else. Uh, She loved to shop. And so I underlined it a couple of times and said, uh, anything else? Like, did she love pets or animals or your children or anything? No, it's pretty much she just liked shopping. I said, well, I understand that. But he cut me off and said, oh, no, no, you, you don't understand. Come, follow me. So he took me down this long corridor. We stopped outside of a closed door. When he whispered almost reverently, he said, Now this was her blouse room. So we walked in. There were all these circular hangers like you'd see in a large department store. All of them crammed with blouses, nothing else. I noticed that most of the blouses still had the price tag hanging from the sleeve. Thousands of blouses. Then we went down the hall, stopped at the next door. Before we went in, he explained, now we're going into her shoe room. Walked in, stacks and stacks and stacks of shoes. Next, he took me to her fur coat room. He told me there are over a million dollars of fur coats in this room. A million dollars of fur coats. I looked at that and I said, wow, she really liked shopping, didn't she? (laughs) Well, per his request... I opened up the floor at the service the next day. So is there anybody here who would like to share an anecdote or a memory of this woman? It was just silence. And so I probed a little more. Is there anybody at all that has anything good to say about this woman? Just anybody help me. I mean, I wasn't quite that desperate yet, but... It was just awkward, terribly awkward, because nobody spoke. And I had nothing to say about her except she liked to shop. And so I tried one more time. Does somebody have something good to say about this woman? And finally, a gentleman in the back raised his hand and he said, well, the sales 
people at Nordstrom are really going to miss her. And I said, thank you for that beautiful testimony. And with that, we concluded and went and ate potato salad. I remember still driving away from the service, just feeling profoundly sad. Not because there's anything wrong with shopping, of course. Nothing wrong that she enjoyed shopping. But it just seemed to me to be such a wasted life. If that's the only legacy you leave... If you ask me, it's not really a wise investment of your one and only life. Do you suppose one more blouse would have made her happy? Think maybe one more pair of shoes. That would have been enough. I kind of doubt it. Solomon amassed an incredible fortune. And yet, as he reflects on his life, he proclaims meaningless, meaningless. It's all just meaningless. All these accomplishments that I've made, all this stuff that I've amassed. One translation puts it, it's cotton candy. It's all just cotton candy. Why waste the prime season of your life just making that portfolio a little fatter. Of what value really is that? Because it's not long. And pretty soon, you find yourself in the autumn season of life. Roughly ages 50 to 75. It occurs to me tonight that my next birthday will put me into that season. And I don't feel real good about that, but... What are you going to do? Because it's the autumn season where you begin to wonder, where'd my life go? How is it going by so quickly? And am I really living wisely? Am I making the most of my one and only shot at life? Now, we see others getting older, but ourselves, it just doesn't seem possible, right? It's like the old story of the woman who moved to a new town. She went to the dentist for the first time. I was looking at some of the diplomas displayed there in the foyer of the office. And she noted one dentist's name. It was the same name of her heartthrob back in high school. And she just wondered whether or not maybe it was the same guy, same name. So she indulged herself for a while in her memories of this guy, remembering how tall and dark and athletic and handsome he really was. He was also smart and a great student leader. And she thought, wouldn't that be something if it was the same guy? Oh, when she saw the dentist, she knew, (laughs) okay, this isn't the same guy because this guy was short and bald and fat. But as they started talking... She began to wonder again a couple of things that he said. Finally, she just asked him, you didn't by chance go to Morgan Park High School, did you? Yes, he said, I'm a Mustang. Really? She said, well, what year? 
1959. No kidding, she said. You were in my class. Really, he said. What did you teach? And we see others getting old. Well, we don't see it in ourselves, do we? Like Maury Venden used to always say, whenever I go back to my class reunions, all my old classmates are so bald and fat, they don't recognize me. And that's about the way it works, isn't it? And so we wonder, how does life go by so quickly? And to people in this season of life, Solomon says... Enjoy life with your spouse, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave, where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. We're all going to the grave, Solomon warns us. So, live wisely and enjoy your life with the people who matter. Don't waste your life amassing a fortune at the expense of meaningful relationships. Enjoy life with your spouse because just like that, it's over. And you find yourself in the winter season of life toward the sunset of your life. And then Solomon goes on to give this graphic description of some of the ailments that we face as we get a little older. That's why he warns us right up front. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. Because the days of trouble are coming. In this winter season of life, we face some of these days of trouble. And then he goes on to describe it in such vivid language. I love this. Chapter 12, verse 3. He says, when the grinders cease because they are few. What are the grinders? Yeah, your teeth. When they cease, that is when they start falling out. As you get older, the days of trouble during this winter season of life. And those looking through the windows grow dim. What are the windows? Anybody notice your eyesight begins to go after a few years? I had a friend about my age who would always brag that he had such great eyesight. He's a pastor down in the Arizona conference, and he would always brag, I don't need glasses. I don't need glasses. Well, I saw him about a year ago at the Arizona camp meeting. And lo and behold, he had a pair of glasses perched up on his head. He wasn't looking through them, but they were on his head. And so, of course, I gave him a hard time about this. I said, hey. Notice you're wearing glasses now. Oh, no, no, he said, quickly hiding them in his pant pocket. He said, no, no, I I only need them for driving. I said, well, why don't you just get a prescription windshield on your car? (laughs) 
Yeah, I kind of like that one too. Uh, When men rise at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. Again, this is just so insightful of aging. When men rise at the sound of birds, Solomon says. In other words, just the chirping of birds keeps you awake at night. Anybody noticed as you get older, you don't sleep as well as you used to? You never hear little kids come to the breakfast table and say, So, Johnny, how did you sleep last night? Usually that's more as we get older. Don't sleep as well. But then Solomon says, but all their songs grow faint. We don't hear as good as we used to. When the almond tree blossoms, have you ever seen an almond tree in full blossom? What's he talking about here? White. It's this shimmering silver white. Just a beautiful sight. In other words, our hair begins to turn gray if we are so fortunate to keep our hair. (laughs) When the grasshopper drags himself along. There's a picture, isn't it? When the grasshopper drags himself along. In other words, the giddy up and go has just gotten up and gone. When the skin under a woman's elbow gets all baggy and wrinkly. Actually, that's not in the Bible. I just, I don't know. That sounds about right, doesn't it? I don't know. Verse 5. When the desire is no longer stirred. Now, you may be young now, Solomon says. And if you are young, enjoy your life. Remember your Creator. Do life with God. Live wisely because the days of trouble are coming. And the grinders are going to be falling out and the eyes will grow dim. And the grasshopper drags himself along and the desires no longer stirred. I love Alexander Solzhenitsyn's quote when he points out that even these days when lived with God, even these days of trouble and aging can be such a rich blessing when we remember our Creator, when we live out this kingdom life. Listen to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He says, aging is in no sense a punishment from on high, but it brings its own blessing and a warmth of colors all its own. There is even warmth to be drawn from the waning of your own strength compared with the past. Just to think how sturdy I used to be. You can no longer get through a whole day's work at a stretch. But how good it is to slip into a brief oblivion of sleep. And what a gift to wake once more to the clarity of your second or third morning of the day. (laughs) 
And your spirit can find delight in limiting your intake of food, in abandoning the pursuit of novel flavors. Oh, you are still of this life. And yet you are rising above the material plane. Growing old serenely is not a downhill path, but an ascent. Even the sunset years of life during the winter season can be such a rich blessing. When you live with God, because we all know that the seasons pass so quickly, don't they? Some years ago, I conducted a funeral for a woman who had been married to her husband for over 50 years. And after the service, the people shuffled by her open casket. The last person to go by was her husband. It was just him and me alone in this cavernous sanctuary. And I wondered if I should stay as a gesture of support or if maybe I should leave and give him time alone to say goodbye. But I erred on the side of supporting him. And so I just stood there and lowered my gaze. And through my tears, I tried to sort of focus on his hand as for the last time. He took her hand. As I looked at their hands, I reviewed in my mind the videotape of all the stories he had shared in preparing for the service. I thought about when they first met. It was at a barn party in northern Idaho. He said, as soon as I saw her, I was just struck by her beauty, and I so much wanted to ask her to dance, but I couldn't get up my nerve. It took me over two hours until finally I approached her. But he said, when I took her hand into my sweaty palm because I was so nervous, and as we started twirling around that dance floor, I knew I had met my soulmate for life. I thought about their hands before the altar before God and witnesses as they slid gold bands on each other's fingers and vowed before the people there and before God till death do us part. I thought about their hands in the delivery room, him whispering words of encouragement in her ear. We're almost there, sweetheart. Soon we'll have our baby boy. You're doing great. Stay with it. Focus. Breathe. And then for a short season of life, there were two little chubby hands between their hands. And then there were four and six as they had three children. But it wasn't long and the kids were grown up and gone. I thought about their hands together clutching that knife. Now their hands shivering with the early onset of Parkinson's disease. Their hands polka dotted with age spots as they sliced through that 50th anniversary cake. 
and how they fed a cake at their 50-year anniversary to each other. Then I thought about their hands more recently. The kids told me how the doctor had instructed him, saying that it would be good to increase her circulation if he could somehow rub her hands and her feet every day as she battled cancer. And the kids told me Dad was just so faithful. Whenever we'd go by the house, it seemed he'd be there rubbing her feet, rubbing her hands. And now one last time. He takes her hand in his hand. Just then he looked up at me. And with a wry smile, he said, Seems like yesterday. We were twirling around that dance floor in Idaho. He said, it went just like that. And now it's over. We all know that's true, don't we? And it just goes like that. The swiftness of the seasons, it's just startling. And life is over. So friends, so long as God entrusts to each of us the miracle of one more day of life, let's not take it for granted, but rather let's live this day. Live wisely in the presence of our God. Oh, Father in heaven, we are so thankful for life. But we realize how quickly it evaporates. And so we thank you for this day, for the miracle of this breath now. We just pray, God, that you would give us your wisdom. And James, you said, if anybody asks for wisdom, you will honor that prayer. And so tonight we ask, we can live wisely, lives that honor you. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.